Welcome to The Week Ahead in Russia, RFERL's Monday podcast about significant developments and upcoming events in Moscow and beyond. I'm Steve Gutterman, and my guest uh, today is Precious Chatterjee Duty, a lecturer in politics and international studies at Open University in the UK, and an expert on Russian foreign and security policy, as well as Russia's information politics and propaganda. Uh, she is the co-author of a new book published last year entitled Russia Today and Conspiracy Theories, People, Power, Politics on RT. Welcome, Precious, and thanks very much for joining me today. Thanks very much for having me on the podcast. All right. It's great uh, to have you. First time guest. Um, uh, now, the first thing I'd like to ask you uh, is about is uh, the continuing and I uh, would say intensifying Russian state campaign to suppress dissent, uh, the clampdown on political opposition, civil society, and independent media, and pretty much any independent voices. Uh, there continue to be uh, many developments in this area, including uh, the treatment of Alexei Navalny in prison, the long prison sentence um, for opposition politician Ilya Yashin, um, and the jailing of American journalist Evan Gershkovich of the Wall Street Journal on espionage charges that his newspaper and the United States firmly deny. But uh, the one uh, development that, that obviously jumps out today and, and will uh, uh, for, for a long time to come, of course, is the, the trial and the verdict uh, in the trial of Vladimir Karimurza an opposition politician and a vocal advocate for international sanctions against Russian officials who violate human rights. Um, Karamurza was charged uh, with treason. He, he returned, he spends uh, a lot of time in the United States, but he returned uh, to Russia um, last year um, after giving a particularly uh, a, a speech in which he, he condemned essentially Russia uh, for the for the for the invasion of Ukraine um, uh, in, in the United States, but he he returned after that and was quickly um, arrested, um, and charges began to he's been charged with three separate crimes, uh, including treason, uh, and today um, he was convicted by a Moscow court and sentenced to twenty five years in prison, uh, which is the uh, which is the term that the state prosecutors had had asked for in his case? I actually think it's it's fairly unusual for 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 the court. I mean, these these trials are um, politically charged trials in the, in Russia. Um, you know, tend to be, uh, I guess. Um, choreographed, um, at least uh, many would say that, um, and, and I think it's true. Uh, but I think it's rare for actually for the, the, the court to um, pronounce the sentence that is that is recommended by prosecutors. Usually they, they cut a little bit off. Um, but in this case, 25 years in prison um, for Vladimir Karamurzan, there's, there's been a large um, you know, international outcry already, uh, you know, in the, in the hours after this this verdict and sentence were pronounced. Um, um, I'll just uh, a, a quote, a previous quote from Human Rights Watch. Um, that organization said that Karamazov was facing a quote monstrous prison term 
for no more than raising his voice and elevating the voices of others in Russia who disagree with the Kremlin, its war in Ukraine, and its escalating repression within Russia. So my question um, is, what kind of a signal is, is Russia, is Moscow, is the government sending with the, the prosecution of Vladimir Karamurza and the conviction and this 25-year prison sentence for Karamurza? Thanks very much. It's, it's a really good question. And it's, it's an important one, really, because I think, as we're all aware, there has been this, um, you know, ramping up of restrictions on the media in general, and obviously on war reporting in particular. Um, very high profile laws prohibiting the discrediting of the armed forces and the spreading of false information, which in effect is just any information that contradicts the official Russian position. But, you know, as you alluded to, the reason that, that the that the sentencing term is so long in this case is because it's essentially being passed off as as treason and you know for me what's what's interesting here is not just that we've seen a sort of selective application of these various um restrictions over time so you look back to a year ago um when the context was was a bit different um we had marina of sfianikova's on on screen protest at channel one which you know she was only fined for you know, subsequent protests. After that, she was looking at a prison sentence um, until she fled to France. Um, we've had other cases, you know, uh, the the jailing of, of Evan Gershkovitz of the Wall Street Journal, um, the case of Alexei Moskolyov, who's, who's facing time in prison due to his daughter doing um, anti-war drawings. You know, if you're looking at the broader picture, it is this not necessarily just the ramping up of restrictions, but the more active policing of them, you know, actually putting into practice um, the, the kind of maximum responses that are possible underneath uh, the restrictions as they stand. Now, in Karim Mraza's case, I think basically it's his international profile and work that mean that the Kremlin really do see him as a threat, you know. He's not just involved in oppositional politics, but, you know, he's a journalist, human rights activist, and he's been very outspoken on the war um, with significant sort of international ramifications, you know, he does have a significant international profile. So in that respect, um, he kind of described it himself last week as being a Stalinist type show trial. And I think that's exactly what it is. Um, the idea behind this kind of maximum penalty is basically part of a wider campaign to convince the broader Russian population that it's just not worth the risk of either speaking out individually or organising more generally. And I think that's a good way to kind of characterise all these um, more recent moves to really stamp down on any sort of expressions of dissent. Um, you know, as you already alluded to, the international response to this has been pretty um, quick. Uh, in the case of the, the UK, you know, bearing in mind he has um, dual citizenship, um, the UK immediately summoned the Russian ambassador, um, has called this out straight away as being a politically motivated conviction. Um, you know, as it happens, the presiding judge was already under UK sanctions um, since, I think, 2020 with the, the um, campaign of sanctions relating to the death of Sergei Magnitsky. Um, and British embassy officials have, you know, been attending all the various court hearings. So um, this is something that's been, you know, kind of on the international radar for a long time, but I think it speaks to this broader fear, basically. And this broader kind of this unrest within the Kremlin that any clear, um, impactful, um, 
or outspoken response to the war, any criticism of the war that can resonate more broadly, can have quite serious ramifications. I think a, a big part of their tactics to date have been to sort of um, not necessarily to stamp down on unrest, but to curtail the expressions of unrest. Because if people can't actively or or effectively um, express how they're feeling, then it's a lot more difficult to stimulate a sort of broader social movement to, to kind of concretize those horizontal ties that would be necessary for any sort of actual resistance to what's going on. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, in terms of the signal to to Russians, uh, you know, clearly uh, 25 years, you know, I, I think it's an unprecedented, unprecedented uh, prison term for uh, a Kremlin opponent. Essentially, there are people who have been, um, including a journalist uh, convicted of treason who have received, I think Ivan Safronov received 22 year prison term um, on on uh, treason charges that were that he and, and backers said were uh, were fabricated or untrue. Uh, but but 25 years, I mean, um, others have gotten Alexei Navalny's serving, I think, a nine year and two and a half year term. Uh, Yulia Yashin, the, um, uh, an opposition politician uh, who was a um, deputy uh a uh, lawmaker in Moscow uh, received, I believe, an eight and a half year term last year, um, 25 years, you know, and, and as you say, they're choosing to, to treat this as treason. 25 years um, is uh, is unprecedented for for a an opponent of the Kremlin. Uh, you know, in the post-Soviet era, um, I just wanted to follow up with a with a question about uh, you mentioned sort of that Karamurza has um, you know he's he's made he's made waves he, he's had his his um, activism uh, and in support uh, in particular of the um, uh, Magnit Magnitsky Act in the U.S. and in other countries, including Britain, um, sanctions against. Uh, Russians uh, officials and others who are deemed uh, you know, to be uh, involved in corruption and human rights abuses um, in Russia um, you know he, he, he had he had uh, advocated for that uh, in in those countries particularly in the US um, do you think that and he was a uh, um, he, he was a kind of a a friend and and associate of John McCain, the senator in the U.S. Do you think Do you think the fact that uh, he sort of has these U.S. ties is is significant in in the the way that they that they've decided to punish him? Um, maybe even in part, kind of a, 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 as a way for the Kremlin to say uh, to to kind of try to augment this this argument that uh, Russia is facing. You know, not fighting an aggress a war of aggression against Ukraine, but is facing kind of a, a war um, essentially instigated by the United States and, and NATO. Yeah, I think that's actually very important. And if you look back through history and certainly, you know, I'm not just talking about in, in the kind of Putin era, um, but prior to that as well, there is a very long tradition uh, within Russia and previously within the Soviet Union of ruling elites using conspiracy theories to basically bolster their own positions in power. Now, often these are manifested in very similar ways, and often it will be the idea that the US is the kind of key global um, 
rival if not enemy and that there are ties between um the us and kind of homegrown dissidents or oppositionalists that basically you know they amount to treason and so you know we've seen that in things like um foreign agent um laws we've seen that in the way that this um this this case has been you know played essentially as treason because it's very easy to do that if you can point to overseas links now very often these overseas links are used essentially to delegitimize any sort of oppositional sentiments um and we've heard this time and time again uh, in recent years as well the idea that any sort of um grassroots social organization has been instigated um by foreign provocateurs um, we had those kind of explanations for the colour revolutions. We heard those kind of explanations um, from the Russian political elite for um, what happened in Ukraine in 2014. And so... Um, 2013, 2014. Um, and so I think it plays into this broader narrative that has some sort of, um, you know, some sort of precedent, some sort of resonance um, that suggests that, you know, nefarious overseas powers are interfering directly in what's going on at home in Russia and that these oppositionists are basically stooges of the West. Um, so I do think that's quite an important factor when you come to consider the severity with which this case has been treated. But in general, I would say it is absolute theatre. You know, it is all about the optics of what's going on. It is about sending a signal. Um, and I think a lot of these sort of um, escalatory, if you like, measures um in the past few couple of weeks, couple of months, um, they've been very much, it, it's it's almost played, um, you know, with that in mind, with the idea of how it looks, um, how significant it looks, of keeping that um, facade, I suppose, that, you know, actually we are under attack from all angles. Um, this war is essentially, you know, like a proxy war where the West is um, provoking our response. It's not Russian imperial aggression. Actually, it's part of a broader geopolitical picture. Um, and unfortunately, when cases like this um, are heard, it, it's almost like even the specifics of the case, even the specifics of, of the person, they are almost secondary to the broader narratives that, that, that the Kremlin's seeking to, to tap into um, in how it plays what's going on, um, both within the kind of domestic sphere, um, within the war itself, and then in the broader international context, I think. Yeah, thanks very much. That That's, uh, that's very um, astute. I, I, and I'd say also on, on a... Um, Kind of a crude level of propaganda, Karim Mirza presumably uh, is a kind of a fat target. The, the Russian, you know, Russian, um, you know, Russians from I guess Putin and, and maybe Patrushev on down have been talking about have have been going on about Anglo-Saxons being the enemy, and this is this is a big theme on as you know on, on Russian TV, and and Karim Mirza. You know, has links to to Britain. He went he went to Cambridge, uh, I believe, and 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 of course to the United States. So, I think he he fits well as a target. Uh, you know, in, in into that into that narrative as well. Um, but my second question, um, like to move on, it's more directly about. I guess it's more directly about Russia's war against Ukraine. Um, uh, I'm going to focus on two developments. Uh, one is the law signed by Putin on Friday, I believe it was, allowing for uh, digital draft notices. Um, in other words, um, 
In the past, Russians uh, were informed that they were being conscripted um, by, I believe, Telegram. You, you had to actually receive a written, uh, a written notice um, for it to be real. Uh, but now, under this, this new law, it's, it's enough uh, that you will have been sent a digital uh, notice. Uh, it makes it harder to uh, avoid conscription. Um, and this has raised fears. Uh, and there's some other new restrictions as well, but this has raised fears of a new large-scale military co-op um, and is expected to make it harder for Russians to avoid being sent to the front. Uh, and this comes after, you know, in September, there was a, Putin announced a, um, a mobilization, what he called a partial mobilization, uh, but they, they saw it to get and said they did uh, bring um, almost, I think, 300,000 uh, know, people, men mostly, to be, uh, to be potentially sent to the front. Now, this is one of many factors, I would say, that seem to suggest Putin is in it, in this war um, for the long haul and that it may continue for a long time, despite uh, substantial Russian setbacks. Um, on the other hand, the uh, Wagner mercenary group founder, Yevgeny Prigozhin, uh, apparently said this weekend that Russia, what Russia should do now is essentially wind down the war and d declare victory. At least as I read it, he's saying that Russia should stop trying to advance, which isn't going very well, and instead focus on holding the territory in Ukraine that it now controls, including a land corridor in southern Ukraine linking Russia with Crimea, uh, which, of course, Russia seized control of in 2014. Uh, and while, while Prigozhin never criticizes Putin himself, um, limiting his salvos to lesser targets, such as the defense ministry, um, uh, he warned that people, in this case, he warned that, that people are looking for scapegoats, uh, raising the specter of political problems for the government if the war goes on much longer. Now, Precious, I'm, I'm not asking you to make predictions about the further course of the war, but I'd be interested in your interpretation of, of these developments or any others you see as important at, at this point. Yeah, thanks very much. I think for me, there's a really bitter irony in the way that these call-up notices are going to be going through the, the state um, services portal, because actually this, this portal itself had genuinely been seen as one of the kind of positive things that the Kremlin had achieved for its citizens in recent years, you know, carving through Russia's pretty famous bureaucracy and creating genuine day-to-day -day benefits for its citizens. And for me, it's not just a bit of bitter irony, but also a really stark illustration of how the Russian state works, that this genuine, genuinely positive achievement for Russian citizens has been just flipped on its head to benefit the state again. And, and the people are essentially, obviously, um, just, a, just another resource for the state, basically. Um, so on the face of it, this makes the process of mobilisation much quicker, cleaner, uh, more effective. It kind of streamlines the the pipeline, I guess, of soldiers to the front. And in reality, it could do that. Um, you know, it certainly makes it possible. But as with anything in the Russian context, in the contemporary Russian context, there is always a sort of balance to be struck between capacity and fulfilment. And if you think about Russia's war efforts so far, the whole thing has been uh, a 
a sort of balancing act between feeding the front and not provoking too much resistance at home. Now, a resistance that can be easily squashed is, um, and we've seen examples of, you know, some of the further flung regions where um, protest amongst this, uh, a protest about the, the mobilisation broke out, they've basically been drafted en masse, um, which sort of solves that problem in a way. Um, but rather than squashing all the time, what happens is often the avoidance of big problems, big social problems. So that's why there have been some, you know, substantial I guess, carve outs in terms of um, military service, you know, it's it's not too difficult to bribe your way out of that um, service if you need to. Um, and the Kremlin essentially looks the other way, because if enough people can avoid doing the things they don't want to do, then it means you don't have to then deal with a kind of mass resistance problem. So the capacity to do something is not the same as seeing it through. And for tactical reasons, the Kremlin often does not see through to full capacity um, what, what it could do. And that's what we have to be looking at next is the extent to which the capacity to call up um, significant numbers and then to you know prosecute if they avoid the draft whether that's followed through because you know theoretically you the notice is sent it's considered as received um, and then there's basically a seven day window I, I believe after which um, traveling abroad becomes illegal um, any sort of avoidance of that draft becomes illegal but obviously there are certain sectors of the population that will still be able to avoid the draft will still be able to very rapidly um, leave the country and those sections of the population are exactly the ones who are better able to avoid the draft before so it becomes another episode in that general russian story of um, basically placing the onus on the kind of weakest or um, least supported members of society and creating carve-outs for those who are in a slightly more privileged position. And we'll have to see whether it does kind of play out in that way, but it is certainly possible um, because that's to date how the Kremlin has sort of managed to some extent its dissatisfaction. So there's, you know, the opportunity to use this, how it will be used, I think, is an open question um, as yet. Um, thinking of Prigozhin's comments, essentially from a tactical point of view, what he said makes perfect sense you know if if you wanted to cement your position um if as russia you wanted to cement your position then it makes sense not to overextend um to try and solidify those gains on the ground to really insist on some specific but limited red lines um the thing is what we've seen so far is that the kremlin has not necessarily been willing to pursue courses of action that seem the most strategically sensible on the ground um, it's not just a matter of what's going on in the conflict itself there are all these other sort of domestic um, aspects I think that have to be taken into account there are sort of legacy issues as well um, there's power play um, at home and there's power play abroad as well I think and the, the sort of management of the sort of international image of Russia and, and of Putin himself, in fact, um, which means that it's not just a case of following a sort of strategically sensible line. And I think, again, that's one of the other things that we have to consider. That's that's part of the way that the war has so far unfolded, has been in a very responsive way, managing particular 
um, problems as they've arisen that perhaps if there had been more strategic foresight would not have arisen in that way. Um, and I think it does sort of speak to a, a, a pretty clear um, lack of proper cooperation, proper coordination between the various um, parties involved and the power play between those parties. Obviously, Prigozhin himself has his own um power base, I guess, through Wagner, um, is a significant figure in his own right, uh, and I guess then gets some sort of shielding to be able to say what he thinks, as long as he doesn't cross that magic red line of criticising Putin directly. Um, and again, that's something that he and others are very aware of, is where the borders of uh, of allowable dissent lie. Um those borders may shift over time, depending on how dissatisfied different portions of the elite become. And again, it, if you watch how um, those comments are made and, and where those lines shift to, that also gives an indication of that kind of intra-elite dynamics at, at work. Yeah, absolutely. Um, interesting to point out that, uh, you know, t- to me, it seems like... Um, while on the surface uh, saying, okay, we're, we're going too far. We, we got to cut, cut back on our, on our goals, you know, would, would seem to be very much, you know, against what Putin has been suggesting. And, uh, but on the other hand, I suppose Putin could, could use that um, if he did want to, uh, to kind of scale down. Uh, I don't know. It's, it's, it's hard to say, but um, also I think you, you sort of mentioned both, you, uh, in your comments on Prigozhin, very interesting. You, you kind of went back to the idea of, you know, what what um, how, how the elite, uh, you know, uh, interprets these things, and 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 a big question, as you mentioned, is whether this um, new kind of e-mobilization or digital draft, whether it will actually be kind of enforced, uh, whether it will be actually be, be carried out, and very very you know very good to point out that this is. Uh, there are a lot of things that the Russian government has said, you know, not, not not just during the war, but in the years and decades before the the invasion, um, that are not carried out. How many times has Putin uh, talked about fighting fighting corruption uh, and that sort of thing? And you know, okay, this time it's really gonna really gonna get uh, you know really gonna cut deep and and get to the elites. But you know, as you say, we don't know, so uh, we'll see. Um, uh, whether those people who have been able to avoid the draft or have been kind of exempt or, as you mentioned, cutouts, whether they will now be be um, be included uh, and 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 be unable to do so, you know, that may have a have a significant effect on, you know, and I guess uh, how people uh, in in the elite are 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 interpreting what what Putin is doing and saying. Yeah, and just on that, there's a couple of other things I'd point out, which is, first of all, sometimes we see the Kremlin create this kind of capacity and not use it immediately, but then bring it into play later on. Um, So we've seen that with things like reporting restrictions over the years. no, I don't just mean in the context of the full scale invasion, but I mean sort of a longer tailed trend where there have been, um, you know, kind of more more restrictive laws and regulations, but again, only selectively applied until they felt it necessary to apply them uh, more stringently. And then 
together with more stringent application, we've had um, increasingly repressive laws instituted as well. Um, so that's one thing is that, you know, this could be architecture that might not necessarily come into play straight away, but may come into play later on. Um, the second thing as well is that we've already seen instances of kind of responses to public dissent about um, particular sections of society being able to get away without being drafted. And we've seen responses to this in terms of, you know, um, elite uh, members of the elite's families being drafted into units far, far, far from the front. So this kind of PR drafting process as well. Again, I don't think that's going to suddenly stop um, just because of this electronic mobilisation. So there are various uh, sleights of hand, I suppose, that can still be undertaken to make it look like a more generalised and more efficient mobilisation process that don't necessarily get to the roots of the um, inequalities that underlie it. Uh, yeah, that's a that's a great point. Uh, very fascinating. It, in a way, I suppose, you know, it could be a sham um, from the start, just kind of a uh, to 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 show um, less for less fortunate, I guess, uh, you know, members of society that that everyone's equal, everyone's going to get drafted. Uh, whereas, you know, as you say, maybe this capacity will not be used or will not be used uh, right away. Okay, well, thanks very much. Um, very very uh, incisive comments. Um, we're getting short on time, but uh, we have time for for a couple of questions if there are any. So I will uh, open it up to questions. Hi, uh, Charles Ray, you can ask your question. Yeah, thanks a lot. Uh, thanks, Steve, and thanks, Precious. Um, my question is about the timing of this new law and whether you believe this is something that has been in the works for, for many months to make mobilization and conscription more efficient or whether this is something more um, immediate in terms of a, a manpower shortage within the Russian military. Um, what do you think about that? Um, hi, Charles. Thanks for your question. Um, I think it's I, I think it's impossible to tell for sure, to be honest. Um, I think it's something that's probably been on the radar for some time, because when you think about the practicalities of it, obviously, this makes a lot more sense than your standard paper draft notices. The fact that it was rushed through so quickly, um, you know, it could be in response to difficulties at the front. But I think a lot of this is is in fact theatre. You know, you rush things through. It looks very um, active, you know, and sometimes it's that sort of... Uh, like a perception of momentum almost to make it seem like, you know, we are actively um, prosecuting the war in the most um, efficient way. And, and I think there are certain sort of, uh, I don't want to say PR exactly, but th there's a certain optics to it that I think is quite important rather than just being a practical matter on the ground. Um, so I think that's a large part of it. And as I say, it's it remains to be seen the extent to which this will unfold to have practical ramifications straight away or not. Um, I su suspect, although I hate to kind of make predictions on the record, but I suspect we won't see um, a massive difference straight away. We're still going to see the same sort of patterning of drafting um, despite this switch to the um, electronic call-up notices. But um, you can call me out on that if I turn out to be wrong. Thanks very much, Precious. Um, we will uh, time for another question if 
if anyone has any. Let's give it a few more moments. Uh, while we wait, meanwhile, oh, um, I think okay. I think Charles has a follow-up question. Okay, go ahead, Charles. Yeah, I apologize. Um, I I don't want to ask all the questions, but um, this discussion was very interesting. Um, I, I guess I would like to ask in in terms of this mobilization effort. Um, and the electronic conscription and so on. Um, I think that we have seen the damage to the Russian economy due to the reaction to the first mobilization. Is this somehow kind of a lessons learned from the Russians gov Russian government? Is this some kind of way to protect, you know, their economic stability um, to set the stage for future mobilizations, I would, I guess I would ask. I, I know that's kind of the same question as I asked before, but um, looking at it from an economic standpoint. Um, I think, again, there are similar... So we know that there was pretty dramatic and almost instant ramifications from the initial um, announcement about partial mobilization. Um, the, the problem is even with it makes it harder i think to dodge a draft notice if this is used in the way it's intended to be used or is set up to be used um intention obviously is a slightly different thing but nonetheless it's still po it is still possible absolutely to flee as long as you do it straight away and again it is essentially the, the kind of middle class that's going to be able to do that um which is an the exact same contingent that they had the problem with before. So I don't think it particularly would solve that problem. Um, perhaps there's a perception that it will make it slightly harder to flee in that, um, you know, kind of brief period. Um, but no, I'm, I, I honestly don't think that in a practical sense, it will make much difference to that. I think it's exactly the same people who are still going to be able to avoid the call up and exactly the same people who won't. Um, what I do think this shows though, um, as I said before, it's just—it's not just a bitter irony, but it's a really clear kind of illustration of how the state works. That essentially, it, it kind of can switch something that was genuinely very useful for its citizens into something that um, is can, can occasion the most harm on its citizens. Um, um, but I do think, you know, just the 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 non the nonsense of it you know we must we're talking about it in practical terms but ultimately this is really nonsensical because there's absolutely no guarantee that anyone who has been sent a notice will have seen the notice and we're almost glancing over that you know it is fundamentally flawed from a practical perspective and i think that's almost part of the logic of it that it doesn't matter it doesn't matter that people genuinely might not have seen these draft notices it is very much uh a very visual illustration of the, the absolute power of the state. And when I said earlier, that I think a lot of this is about theatre. I think that's part of it, that this is, it's the state doing what the state does and it doesn't matter whether it works on a practical level or not. It is just clear that we are on a war footing um, and this is how we want to do it. The people are a resource for the state. And in that way, I think it repeats a very common story of Russian history, certainly a very common story of Russian military history. Um, and to me, it's just, you know, very bitter and very sad that we're seeing this kind of same thing replayed, but using modern technologies.
Thanks so much. I, I just want to, I, I thought that was a great, um, the people are the resource of the state, um, you know, that is encapsulates, uh, you know, the continuing situation in Russia um, um, that may have changed for a, a few years in the 90s, um, but was back um, soon after Putin came to power, in, in my view. And 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 as you as you say, I mean, it's it's a bitter irony, you know. Anyone who who spent time in in, in the Soviet Union or or, or post Soviet Russia, you know, the bureaucracy and the, the inefficiencies, you know, going to Sparebank, um was a huge part of life. And this, uh, you know, this is one. This is something. Uh, this system, you know, something that made things easier. And as you say, you know, the, it's it's a bitter irony that it that it's used. To further again this this idea that you know this the, that that the people are are the resource of the state. Um, so just wanted to was really running short on time, but if there's uh, another question, we can take one. Okay. Um, I don't see any others, so I will I'll see if Charles wants to follow up with the third question. Yeah, R really sorry, Steve, um, uh, and Precious, but your answers are, are absolutely fantastic. So I'm, I'm just going to ask one more, which is, you know, essentially we, we, we're always talking about, you know, what is the straw that breaks the camel's back in, in Russian civic society, excuse me, in, in terms of, you know, when is that social contract broken, whether it be with the elites or with the middle class or, or with rural populations and so on. Um, how do you see this conscription change and also, of course, the attrition rates, which are getting back into to Russian public media um i know it's impossible to ask like when does that when does that break but what are the breaking points yeah great question um i think it is absolutely it's about where that balance level is and you know theoretically like i said in theory and practice is totally different theoretically um shifting these draft notices online if they were to be um uniformly applied then that could that could be it right if people who have managed to pretend the war's not happening suddenly can't that could be it is it going to be it honestly i would say probably not at this stage because i do believe that this has been quite clearly strategized by the kremlin in the way that everything else has been so far which is you squash the dissent that you have to and that you can get away with comfortably you avoid dissent where you can avoid it by allowing the kind of carve outs the kind of bribes the kind of avoidances um, that you need to do so that um dissent never comes becomes widespread enough to foment the sort of horizontal ties that stimulate a proper social movement now if enough people genuinely feel that their lives and liberty are at stake then that's when the tide turns that's when you see those horizontal ties those kind of social movements and that's when you see a more um empathetic sort of response to people who are already suffering from war you know like the ukrainian population which seems not to have been such a big consideration for a lot of the russian population so far um who are i think for a, 
certainly understandable reasons are concerns with saving their own necks to a large extent and if it it still becomes if it still remains possible for enough people to save their own necks then little will change in in the in the medium term and that is a i think that's something we have to bear in mind right because you know you asked a question earlier about whether or not this is a response to the need for personnel at the front and always the need for personnel at the front has got to be balanced in the Kremlin mind with the need to maintain order at home. And we know that Putin almost fetishizes order. So it, it is never, there is never a simple military decision being made from the Russian side in this war. There is always that balance between maintaining order at home and retaining some sort of battlefield performance. So I'm sorry I can't give you a clear answer about where I think that tipping point is, but I would say I don't think that the Kremlin's unaware of that's what it's dealing with. And it, I think it's very high up on the Kremlin agenda to avoid tipping that point. Uh, that's a great answer, Precious. Thanks very much. And thanks for the questions, Charles. Um, I'm just going to make one comment before uh, before wrapping it up. I just, you know, you talked about a tipping point. Um, Charles, you asked about the breaking point. Um in some other Russia, some other way that Russia could have developed, um, maybe the question would be whether um, Vladimir Karamurza's uh, sentence um, was the breaking point. Unfortunately, um, clearly it, that's not the case in the Russia that exists today. Um, on that uh, note, um, uh, not very uh, happy note. I'll uh, wrap it up here. Um, Precious, uh, thanks very much for joining me and for for your great uh, your great uh, insights and answers. Thanks very much for having me on the podcast. All right. Um, once again, I've been speaking to Precious Chatterjee Duty, a lecturer in politics and international studies at Open University in the UK, and an expert on Russian foreign and security policy as well as its information, politics, and propaganda. She co-authored the book, Russia Today and Conspiracy Theories, People, Power, and Politics on RT, which was published just last year. And my name is Steve Gutterman, editor for Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus in the Central Newsroom at RFERL. As I mentioned at the start, this conversation will also be published as a podcast, and you can subscribe to The Week Ahead in Russia and other RFERL podcasts on any platform um, that you choose um, to listen to podcasts. Now, I'll be back uh, next Monday for another installment of The Week Ahead in Russia. And please keep an eye out for my newsletter, The Week in Russia, on Friday. Thanks for listening, and thanks for your questions.